Welcome to Taking Care, a podcast by APRA and the National Boards. I'm Tash Miles, and today we're talking about what a safe, competent and ethical health practitioner looks like to the public. Let's meet our guests. We've got George, Dorothy and Rochelle. I'm George Talapoulos. I uh, am a disability rights advocate. I'm Dorothy McLaren. I'm a rural citizen and consumer of health services living in the Wimmera region of far western Victoria. I'm Rochelle McCausland. I'm the National Health Practitioner Ombudsman and Privacy Commissioner. Let's start off. Dorothy, in your experience as a health consumer, what does a safe, competent and ethical health practitioner look like to the public? I think the public actually just expects those things of every health practitioner. So it's really hard to define what that looks like. Um, We come in with a lot of trust and we assume that there will be safe, competent and respectful care from everybody that we meet. However, I think when we break that down a little bit, it really does come down to uh, a consideration of our personal circumstances, um, to really good communication that takes account of our needs. And as I say, our expectations of clinical care almost go unmentioned in the sense that we simply expect that every practitioner will be equally competent. And you, George, what do you think? As a disabled person, I would also say that I expect the practitioner to see the entirety of the person and not to just focus on their disability or the most obvious thing about that person. Um, And I really, to me, it's important that there's some level of disability awareness. I, I really appreciate it when I, I meet a, a health practitioner who isn't freaked out by my disability um, and who is actually really excited by the opportunity to work with someone who's different. And, and I think that um, it's really great that um, you know, my experience can educate people because they often don't see people like me all the time. And so I love it when I meet a practitioner who sees, sees me as, as an opportunity rather than as a, as a, as a, as a problem. So focusing on the things that can be learned and that we can learn together is, is really fantastic. What makes a healthcare experience feel safe? I think safety really looks like us feeling safe in the experience, more about being respected and understood um, than probably a, a, a significant judgment about clinical care. It's really, it's hard for the average citizen to know whether or not what they're getting is clinical care, they just expect it. So our judgments of how safe we feel in the interaction tend to come more from um, from those interpersonal skills. And as George said before, it's so important. We're more than just a diagnosis. So I think where trust erodes is when you start to feel that you're that you're less than a whole human being in front of that clinician. My experience of safety is often um, to do with how, uh, how confident I feel with the knowledge that that practitioner has and how confident I feel about they have 
understood my problem. I confess when I'm with a, uh, a practitioner that is prepared to take the time that's needed uh, to understand my experience. Dorothy, do you have any examples of what you see as good practice by a health practitioner? I have an example of, of good practice um, that's happened to me in fairly recent times. I required some specialist surgery on my foot in Melbourne. Um, that's quite a long distance from where I live. And when I rang up the practice office, the first question that was asked of me was, where are you coming from? Oh, let me just check and see how far that is away. Well, let's see, I can see that you're going to need um, some time to travel. Let's give you an appointment in the middle of the day, which was fantastic. It meant that I only had to take one day off work to come down to Melbourne and, and have this initial consult with the surgeon. Um, after I spoke with the surgeon who, um, who communicated beautifully with me and gave me a great sense of confidence in his own skill, he then handed me to his practice nurse who immediately said to me, okay, this is the time of day when we're going to give you surgery so that we can optimize your travel. Would you prefer that we do it you know, middle of the day so that um, your travel needs are met or would you actually prefer that it's at the start of a day so that you can come down the night before and have a whole day um, to prepare or get ready um, for your surgery. And actually what we elected to do was to do it in the afternoon so that I could come down and then have an extra night in hospital, even though this was um, theoretically a day surgery. I was given a night in hospital to recover so that I could go home fresh the next day. In addition to that, the practice nurse said to me, now here are some things you might want to consider about your home environment when you get home and the services that you might need to receive when you go back to start your recovery. And that, that very personal, practical advice really made the world a difference. In terms of the, the social determinants of health, <laughs> distance and access to transport uh, are probably one of the key determinants of whether or not we're actually going to be able to get clinical care much less whether or not that clinical care is of sufficient quality. So for us, in order to feel um, comfortable and safe in that experience, to have those needs recognized so that we can concentrate on our clinical circumstances, then on we can concentrate on getting the best information about our condition, um, have the best interaction possible with the um, the clinician that we're speaking to because we're not exhausted and stressed and all those sorts of things, it does, it makes a huge difference. When I listen to that story, I, what I do there is that the person is putting themselves in their shoes and thinking, oh, what would make it easier for that person? And and I think for two, I didn't sadly, and I, I, sometimes I feel like the medical system is so focused on the needs of the system that the person themselves gets forgotten. And I just, I just think it's important that we, you know, go back to what, what does a person need and, and focus on that. Sometimes it's stuff that seems very mundane, but when I look back on them, I think that was really important. So I remember when I first met um, and who, when I went in there and I, I, I explained it with him and resolved it, he then asked me about my overall health and that hadn't happened before. And I thought, oh, 
that, that's quite valid that, that we will look at an overall health plan for me. And, and that, that meant a lot to me. It meant that I felt that this person was interested in my longevity, in my overall well-being, and not just having me come in and go out as soon as possible. Do you think there's an assumption that the practitioners you see will be safe, competent and ethical? Absolutely. I mean, and especially when you think about the fact that um, most people will avoid going to see a health professional um, unless they really need to. You know, as a disabled person, um, it does take me a bit more effort than most people to to get to my doctor or my health professional. And when I get there, I absolutely want them to be competent and, and to know what they're doing. Rochelle, what about your perspective as the ombudsman? Another reflection on what a safe, competent and ethical health practitioner looks like to the public is that I think people really depend on the regulator um, to ensure that practitioners do have those qualities um, and I think there is an assumption that people are only registered if they do have those qualities and that the regulator will take action um, if it is brought, it's brought to their attention that practitioners aren't practising in a safe, competent and ethical way. Michelle's absolutely right. We expect that there is some kind of a governing body that is taking care of that, but that's not actually something that we need to consider in our judgement about who we're going to seek help from, but that somebody else is looking after that. What could be done to improve the healthcare experience and make it more safe? Uh, some years ago, I was fortunate enough to have a focus group with some lovely people who'd been travelling for healthcare and some senior clinicians, and we were, we were looking at questions very similar to this. And one of the questions that was posed to the group was, if you had a dollar to fix healthcare, to improve your experience, where would you spend the money? And interestingly, that group of consumers overwhelmingly chose to break their dollar up and spend it primarily on communication, on effective communication. Early on in the piece, communication that included them being given the opportunity to give an understanding of themselves as, as a whole human being and more than just a diagnosis. And then significant points of information uh, along their their journey, and they chose to call it the humanity feedback loop, which I thought was was actually really, yeah, quite lovely. Yeah, and so you want your practitioner to be knowledgeable, but there's no there's no benefit unless they can communicate that knowledge. Um, so much of what moves, and so much of a good experience is around how how competently and, and, and clearly um, you can communicate. And so with disabilities, that sometimes means that you're able to, um, you know, more able to simplify language um, and that you're able to take extra time that it might mean, that it might be needed to communicate. And, and the other thing is that communication isn't just one way, it's two ways. So that also means you need to really be able to listen to the person and, and what they're saying. You spend that time early on in the piece to 
to have effective communication, you save it back. So sometimes when we when we hurry <laughs> through um, healthcare-related conversations, it actually ends up costing us as consumers and costing the system further on down the track in terms of inefficiency. In many of the complaints to my office, communication with the practitioner is an issue that is raised. Um, a lot of times it's around um, feeling like they didn't understand exactly what was happening or um, what should happen or what could happen. Um, and um, there are a lot of complaints that we receive where um, consent and informed consent um, is an issue. Um, and people sometimes feel like they've signed the consent form but not really had a conversation or understood um, what's happening um, to kind of support that, that paperwork. Dorothy, do you have any comment on this disconnect or misunderstanding that could happen between patient and practitioner? I think that there's a lot of discussion at the moment about health literacy and it is important, it's really important for, for patients and consumers to have good health literacy in order to understand the system that takes over their lives when something goes wrong um, and to be able to navigate that system. I think we, we sometimes uh, fail to focus on the fact that that understanding of health literacy also creates some responsibility for the clinician. Um, it, it concerns me that it's possible that health literacy becomes a reason to push more responsibility back on the patient. In other words, we say, you know, their health literacy wasn't good, so they've got, well, they've got into this state or they don't really understand what this is about. It's not my problem because I provide good clinical care. Um, but I think that if we're, if we're careful about how we think about health literacy, then it really is an opportunity to improve the experience for both the clinician and the patient and to improve the clinical outcomes. Yeah, I see what you mean. George, what do you think? Isn't it good when the doctor or whoever just says, um, says to you, I don't know? And, you know, I actually appreciate it when practitioners are happy to uh, Google things in front of you and, and, you know, try and work it out together rather than pretending that they know. And <laughs> you end up getting the wrong information. So just admit what you don't know and let's work on it um, and, and come to learn together. That's a good thing. Our expectations um, are that people will have a, meet a standard of clinical care, but not that they're superhuman. I've recently chosen to return to a GP because I know that she'll go off and look stuff up and is really open to thinking more broadly ab about whatever I've come to see her about rather than just um, replying with a formula. Well, I think that when we um, tend to go to the effort to see someone, we often nowadays will have a bit of information already. Um, you know, Dr. Google is incredibly um, enticing. Like, you know, it's very hard to have a symptom and not Google it. I think what George has said is, is right. Dr. Google has probably, <clears throat> pardon me, had the... Um, the biggest influence on the individual and clinician interaction. And um, that can be a good, bad, or indifferent influence, I suppose. It is nice to be able to, um, to seek support and seek extra information, especially if you're not 100% clear about what's happened. 
Um, it's also very easy to diagnose yourself with everything under the sun <laughs> and become a very frustrating person for a clinician to deal with. Um, but, I, but I'm also tempted to say that I think for the average person, until they need something from the healthcare system, they really don't give it a thought at all. Um, that it's something that just doesn't register on the radar for people. Rochelle, how do you think the changing expectations of the public have increased people's willingness to raise a concern when they don't have a good experience? In the space that I work in, we've seen some really big changes around community expectations, um, particularly around transparency, um, being involved and um, being informed. Um, And so regulators and ombudsman services across Australia are all seeing really big increases in concerns being raised with them. And I think that that does reflect this changing way that people are thinking about, you know, what they can expect and the information that they should be provided with. George, what's your take on this? For people with disabilities, particularly if they have communication impairments or cognitive impairments, it's actually really hard to to complain or to um, be assertive around your your healthcare needs. And I think people um, are really disadvantaged by a system that that requires you to you know, write a complaint in writing and you know to do all this work that you might not be able to do um, in order to, to complain. We need to be really flexible in how we uh, accept complaints and 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 how we and how we support people to make complaints. In the past, it's been a requirement to have complaints made in writing, and I think that um, generally there's a move away from that to recognise that it should really be easier for people to raise concerns. And what happens when the patient is involved with the healthcare system and something goes wrong or they have a concern? I do know that for people who live in rural communities, there's a real hesitation to complain about any healthcare interaction that's been less than optimal for them, whether it's uh, fairly trivial or very serious. And that's partly because they know that the person they're complaining about they are likely to meet in the supermarket that evening or um, they might be related to them or they might play tennis with them. Um, so, you know, there there is this sense that um, you don't want to rock the boat and there's also a sense, and I think this is particularly something I've come across with, with older people who are living in rural communities, they are very hesitant to complain about a service because they feel like they'll be blacklisted. And we all know that's not going to happen, but it's a very real perception in the community and it is a blocker uh, um, to people making complaints. And I think we need to recognize that. I think we also need to recognize that there's, you may not, well, you may not generate a complaint because frankly it's exhausting. And if you've just had a bad experience in healthcare, you might be quite sick. You might um, you might have just spent quite a lot of time in hospital. You might just be utterly exhausted and not have the wherewithal to start in on the process of making a complaint or giving feedback because it's hard work, as George said before. Um, and then also in rural communities, we have this 
factor where hospitals and health services are probably the largest employer in town. Um, I know in the areas where I work, health services variously across our communities probably account for 10% of the total employment. Um, so their employees touch every household. When you have that kind of a spread in community, it becomes very, very difficult to get the objectivity to sit back and make a complaint about your clinical care. And I can relate to that as well from a disability perspective. Um, the whole concept of being blacklisted. Um, because um, when you have a genetic um, impairment or some, some disease that, that is, requires a, a specialist, there aren't that many people that will see you. And then when you see someone, you think, oh, God, I hope they're good, because if they're not, there's really no one else. Um, and that, that's, that can be really disempowering, and, and, and it's, it makes it even less likely that you will um, complain if the service is bad, because there's no one else, sad boys, that can help you. One of the reasons that so many complaints are generated about communication is that that's something that as consumers we can make a judgment about. We can't necessarily make a judgment about our clinical care. Uh, and in my experience, the person doing that complaining doesn't really benefit personally from complaining. In fact, often um, they then might uh, suffer as a result of making that complaint. But it is a very altruistic thing to do often to complain. You're normally benefiting other people more than yourself. It's less about them receiving justice or, um, or some sense of resolution for themselves, and it's more that, you know, that commonly heard thing, if I can just help one person. So why might someone complain? Have you made a complaint or raised a concern recently? Complaining is um, it's not formal. So um, I recall recently I um, I've written for a practitioner who I never met before, and I was there with my support person um, who's there to assist me with my disability needs. And um, when I walked in, he said hello, and then he um, proceeded to speak but for some reason couldn't speak to me. He kept speaking to the person I was there with. And um, I, I just observed this behavior. It's behavior that I'm used to. I'm, I'm, quite, I'm quite, you know, I've seen it before, but whenever I see it, it just really um, pisses me off. So I, um, I just said, I'm, I'm the person who's here to see you and you need to speak to me, and then from then on, to do it. And now, you know, I wasn't complaining. I was communicating my needs. And and I think that, that the word complain isn't the best word, because we're just trying to communicate. And when we, when we use formal mechanisms, it's often because as the ombudsman who sees a lot of these complaints, when a patient has a poor experience, what do you think motivates them to raise it as a complaint or concern? 
So we see a range of motivations um, for people making complaints to my office. Um, it ranges from things like um, people wanting an apology, um, people wanting someone to listen, uh, a pos- wanting a positive change for others so that other people don't experience the same um, event or issue that they did. Some people are looking for compensation, um, but I would say that the number one issue that people um, raise with us is wanting more information um, or to understand what has happened in more detail. Um, So there's often an information gap that people are trying to fill when they complain. And isn't it sad that that you need to go to the effort to get the information that you need? I think that... um, that we need, we need systems in place that, that are really around um, solving problems rather than, um, you know, one person um, against the other. Rochelle, do you think complaints represent a missed opportunity? People um, feeling, I don't know, some fear about um, raising concerns directly with a health practitioner or with a health service, um, it means that they're missing that opportunity to get that extra bit of information. So we do see things that come to our office that um, have gone through the APRA notification process and then they've come to my office when really what the person is seeking is a further explanation from the practitioner themselves. Um, And so they would get that by talking directly to the practitioner, but there are barriers that they feel um, are kind of preventing them from doing that. As a consumer, what do you expect when making a complaint about a health practitioner? My expectation about making a very formal complaint would be that the power imbalance that's inherent in any interaction that I have with the clinician, you know, they're the expert and I'm not, But if I've got a serious enough concern that I go to a formal complaint, I would expect that that power imbalance would be mediated by the complaint process so that we become equal partners in trying to resolve the issue that I've brought to the complaints process. Generally, we say that um, if we can show complainants that the process has been fair, they're more likely to accept the outcome as being fair, even if it's not the outcome that they wanted. So what... I think people really want to see is that the process has been fair. So for them, that means um, really comprehensive reasons for decisions that they can understand, um, engaging with the issues, um, empathy um, if someone's experienced a really traumatic experience and being willing to answer questions. So I think it it really is around um, transparency and openness um, and people then feel that the process has been fair. Any thoughts, George? There's a lot of action. I want to see that there's a result or an outcome from their complaints. Even if it's not the exact outcome that they want, they want to see that something has happened and that there has been some benefit from them taking the the time to complain. I know that um, at the sort of community level, if... If for those people who have, you know, say made a complaint to their local health service, if you get a letter back that says the CEO has noted your complaint, um, there will be a lot of chatter on the Bush Telegraph about the fact that they're not really satisfied with that. But if they get a letter back that says the CEO has noted your complaint and 
we have, um, say, instigated some more training with a particular sector of staff or we have spoken to that individual concerned and this is the outcome. It doesn't have to be detailed. You don't have to know exactly what happened. But to have it acknowledged and to have some particulars about what's happened in relation to your complaint I think is really important. And I think that that, um, that also then generates a culture of being more comfortable to give feedback. It's not a threat. It's about moving to a safer system that's humane and fair where people can voice their concerns and we improve as a result. So as we're winding up, Rochelle, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share? Based on the complaints that come to my office, um, we know that a key issue for a lot of people is an information gap, not understanding what has happened or, or wanting a further explanation about what has occurred. Um, and we resolve most of our complaints by providing that further information. Um, so although it can feel like it takes extra time, I think investing time in good communication and, and really talking to people is is worth it. It's, it's really valuable. And Dorothy, George, from a consumer perspective, is there anything more you'd like to say? The best, the best way to talk to me is to have respect for me as a whole person and that's that's my expectation. doesn't mean we have to know everything about each other. It just means that you need to recognise that I am more than my diagnosis, that I'm a whole person with a whole life. Ask the person, how can I help you? And, and then work with that person to, uh, to understand what you're both going to do um, to make that relationship work. One issue that um, people with disabilities will often talk about around their experiences with the health system is that we're afraid that the health system is going to kill us. Now, <laughs> I don't mean to be dramatic, but um, you know, hospitals are the most unsafe places for a person with a disability. Um, Primarily because it takes time to understand what our needs are. And hospitals are so about doing things quickly and doing them efficiently and doing them their way. But as a disabled person, it's the opposite. I need things done to my needs. I need people to take the time. And I also need people to understand that my life has value. There seems to be an assumption that the several people hate their lives, that we're, that we're not happy and that we, we don't mind if we die. Um, the reality is, is that we love our lives and that we, that we love life as much as everyone else and that, and that we expect the health system to do you know, everything it can to, to um, make us uh, not, not die. Thanks again to our guests, Dr George Talaporis, Dorothy McLaren and Rochelle McCausland for your thoughts and the beginnings of lots of interesting conversations about safe, competent and ethical healthcare. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. Please do send through any comments or feedback to communications at arpro.gov.au. See you next time.